Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 7, 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nyan, and his disciples and a great crowd went with them. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole, whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You may be seated. All right, so I want to get right into this. Luke 7, um, so we're, like I mentioned, we're doing Luke unique content. Um, if we were tra- tracing through Luke um, 7 from verse 1 of the chapter all the way to verse 50 at the end of the chapter, um, this uh, segment here with the widow's son being raised to life uh, would seem like kind of just a blip um, on the radar. It would kind of just seem like the baseball scores being read, read at night, you know, just like just read through them because it's, it's really quick uh, the way Luke goes through a resurrection account, uh, which when you think about it, somebody died and then Jesus talked to them and then they rose from the dead, right? You think... Luke, can we get more than six verses? Like, what's going on here? Uh, And so it kind of begs the question, is Luke not serious about this? Is this not a big deal to Luke? Um, You know, just what's going on? Was this just not an important guy? And so, like, we didn't get a lot of information on him. Like, what's the deal here? And I don't think that's the case at all. It has nothing to do with insignificance, uh, but it has everything to do with what Luke is building toward. And so the the, kind of the whole content uh, in and around this resurrection account uh, this miracle of raising this this child, uh, this boy, man, I think he's a young man, from the dead, um, is that Luke is, is going somewhere with this account in the midst of other accounts to try to point the reader uh, to the answer of a question at the end of chapter 7, which for me I have to turn the page to see, and that is that people begin to ask the question, who is this? In Luke 7, verse 49. Now, thankfully, verses 36 through 50 are also unique to Luke's gospel, and so we're going to go over those next week. And so we're going to take a little bit more time looking at the span of Luke 7 and what Luke is building here, because Luke begins with a story about a miracle. Then he tells a story about a greater miracle, a a conquering of death, a raising to life after death. And then he talks about an interesting encounter with John uh, the Baptist and his disciples and some questions going on there. Uh, And then finally, at the end, he deals with the forgiveness of sin. Okay, And so through Luke chapter 7, Luke is building something. He's kind of trying to, to, to work us up toward answering this very important question, which Mark also asks in his gospel. Um, and, and sees an answer to, and that is, who is this, right? And so at this point in the book of Luke, we're kind of in the, um, in the early stages of Jesus' ministry, right? The beginning of Luke, he's talked about 
the miraculous birth of Jesus, um, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, and, and kind of the significance of what's about to start. And then we see Jesus move into his public ministry um, where he pronounces, I'm the Messiah, I'm the sent one, uh, coming to bring the good news of the kingdom, which is good news for the poor and the blind and the oppressed and the captives. Um, and then he starts to move about kind of the Galilee region doing these, these miracles. And little by little, he's getting the attention of the crowds. And this Luke chapter 7 is here in the midst of that, where, where just the, the, the intensity of who Jesus is, the weight of what he brings to, um, to the world in his words and in his deeds and in his ministry uh, is just building um, as, as he kind of moves, moves through Galilee and some of the areas around us. So uh, nine, this city um, that he visits, this little village that he visits is in that region, uh, and Jesus goes there, and this is what he encounters. So I want to read this again. We like to read and reread and be um, as familiar as we can with Scripture so we can grow to know it, love it, and understand it. Um, so I'm going to read it again, verses 11 through 17, and then we'll jump in and take a look at, uh, at the significance of this moment. So here it is. Uh, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people." And this report about him spread throughout, or through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. All right, let's pray as we dig in. Thanks, Father, for this day. Um, we are, uh, are a people who are prone because of our surroundings, our world, this, this, this life that screams at us um, in so many ways. God, we're prone to... Um, to kind of fly by things and miss their significance. And, and it kind of seems like Luke may, might have done that in this situation, but Lord, we know that, that uh, there's, a, there's a greater purpose and a, and a big narrative being, being told here, and, and we're thankful that uh, we get these glimpses of Jesus and what he's teaching and what he's doing and how he's interacting with people and the conversations that he's having and, and, and the little asides that, that he mentions with his disciples and, and the great proclamations that he makes to the crowds. Um, and we, we keep on getting a greater picture of Jesus so that we too can, can take this journey and, and move toward the place where we can answer the question, who is this? Um, and so today as we see standing before us uh, a man who claimed also to be God, who also did miracles, who also raised the dead, um, that we deal with the significance of uh, these claims. We know that they are not accidental claims. We know that no one who wrote them uh, says they were merely fables, but rather staked their lives. They died to proclaim the truth of Jesus who came and lived, who did miracles, who raised the dead, who preached the gospel, and himself was dead but raised from the grave. Um, would you 
help our hearts move into a place where we are able to weigh uh, the significance of these things, God. And especially as we tread into uh, just kind of the, the, the culturally unpopular uh, discussion about death, um, would you aid us by your spirit to, um, to hear well what your word says and, and what Jesus um, has to do with uh, this just pending situation that we all know is coming, um, but we hate to talk about, and that is um, death itself. Um, so help us, we need you. Uh, we need your spirit to guide us in these times. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Sorry, verse 11 and 12, Jesus moves into this town. Um, he's got a lot of people with him, and the, 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 the big crowd of people that are with him run into another crowd of people that are with this woman, um, which is basically a funeral procession, right? Um, so I don't know a whole lot the Jewish customs of funerals, but I do know that the way they handled dead bodies was um, very particular. Uh, and so I do know that they had to take him outside of the town um, because in coming in contact with a dead body means that you were unclean and you couldn't go to worship. So um, they were taking a body outside of town. So we know at the very least this is a procession to bring this dead young man outside of the town so that he can go to the cemetery and they can do the proper burial and that the community can then, um, you know, be purified and go through the consecration, all that kind of stuff. So what Jesus runs into right here in this moment is a funeral. That's just plain and simply the way to say it. Jesus walks up on a funeral. Um, and in the opportunity that presents itself, we see Jesus interact um, with this funeral and in particular with this woman uh, who has lost uh, her son. And, and we see kind of a redeeming situation in all of that. Right? We see Jesus drawing near, we see Jesus speaking, uh, we see Jesus bringing his power to bear, and then we, we hear whispers of other things in the Gospels uh, in this passage, and then we see a clear trajectory toward what ultimately will be uh, the greatest conquest of death, and that is Jesus himself rising from the grave after he was killed three days later, rolling back the stone and coming out of the tomb. And so um, all of this is, is presented in this picture as we see Luke uh, tell the story about this funeral. Now, it's important to note, um, and just because of our culture, and, and there might be a little, little bit of tongue-in-cheek here or whatever, but um, Jesus doesn't stumble upon a, uh, a celebration of life here. Uh, Jesus stumbles upon a funeral, okay? Uh, there's a great crowd of people that are accompanying this widow. They're mourning with her. Uh, she is weeping, right? Um, Jesus tells her not to weep. You don't tell someone not to weep unless they are weeping. So we know the woman is weeping uh, as she's journeying outside of the village with uh, her son in the casket. And, uh, and so this, this whole situation helps us to recognize that sometimes we are prone to, uh, as people, and I think we culturally, um, as uh, Westerners or as Americans, that, that we've taken something that is, is weighty and heavy and significant and meant uh, to express just grief and mourning and sorrow, uh, and, and we've, we've kind of tried to, uh, to, to tidy it up a little bit. Uh, we've, we've, in many ways, kind of um, uh, Americanized it or, 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 or twisted it in, in ways so that we don't have to feel all the feels, right? Um, which is uh, devastating when you think the long-term ramifications of it, but when you think about it short-term, you know, a lot of people are like, yeah, that, well, that's, that's okay, right? That's, that's the way we should do things. And I recently did a funeral right around Thanksgiving, and I noticed that even the, 
Um, pamphlets at funeral homes are changing um, to reflect the trend in America uh, to use the term celebration of life and to actually switch what you do in a funeral, like some of the layout and some of the, the things you talk about, um, because we as a culture, we're not comfortable talking about death. We just aren't. Uh, and, and, and in particular, um, we're, not, we're not comfortable with burdening uh, ourselves or others with uh, hard feelings, right? We want to blow right through them and get to uh, the, the sappy, sentimental stuff. Uh, we'd rather spend our time and energy there um, than to actually look inside and consider the fact that when we come to that point in life where we're recognizing the loss of somebody else, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a vulnerability in our own lives, a frailty uh, to our own selves um, that we're really afraid of uh, and we'd rather not touch on. Because if we dwell on the fact that this person is gone, then I have to acknowledge the fact that I'll be gone, and that means something about my life. The fact that one day I won't be here. But if I can just keep ignoring that and passing that off and pushing that away, then I can do different things with my life because it just doesn't mean the same thing. Um, and I think we've done some disservice to ourselves in the way that we've treated some of these things. Now, some of you know this and some of you don't know this. I don't say this all flippantly uh, because I just preached my, dad, my own dad's funeral in 2017. And so these are not judgmental, flippant, arrogant statements where I'm just like, all oh, y'all are idiots. Um, I felt the temptation to do the same thing. I still walk through the temptation to do the same thing. And I see clearly the devastation of not acknowledging death when death comes, right? I've walked with people, even folks currently in my family, and see the long-term devastation of not dealing with what it really is when it really comes, okay? And so these things are not flippant. These things are not uh, dismissive um, and, and uh, uh, untender. They're heartfelt. So I hope that that's, that's clear and this comes across. Um, so it, it's interesting, though, that, I mean, I mean, I grew up in, like, when video games started, you know? Like, that's how old I am. And, uh, or young, thank you. And uh, I remember when video games took the turn to, like, blood and death and, like, guns and, like, finish him, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And... And uh, I was in, like, you know, like the cultural Christian bubble um, in some ways during that era. And I remember the outcry from parents, which was great, and acknowledged, you know, the significance of what was going on. And some of the Christian community would say some of these things, you know, like, like we're, we're, we're just glorifying death, you know. Like, we're, we're making all these kids just so uh, immunized to death, you know. They're getting... They're getting callous today, you know, and of course movies and, you know, blood and gore and all that stuff going on too. And there was just this, like there was these alarms going off uh, about how we were going to ruin, you know, the youth because of all the, the death that is going on. Uh, and it's interesting to see what's happened now that those youth who encountered all that death have grown up into adults um, and the kind of culture that we have. Uh, we, we have a culture that knows a whole lot about killing um, but knows actually very little about death. 
Um, and, and so I, I think the, there's been cultural ramifications to the, uh, the kind of regular seeing of dying things. Um, and it's not quite the ramification that we thought. <laughs> uh, it is rather than just saying uh, life is worthless or whatever, um, we've gone to a place where we don't recognize um, that what actually happens uh, when, when people die. So we're, we're so familiar with the killing aspect that we, we can't speak very well about what death means. Uh, and so we've got an entire culture of people that are, are, are well acquainted with, with, with how things die, um, but we're not very well acquainted with what that means. Uh, and most significantly, not just what does it mean emotionally, what does it mean temporarily, what does it mean for my family, what does it mean uh, here on this earth, but, but more significantly, we don't have a recognition of what does it mean eternally. Um, and really, when we look at the, the kind of the, the, the proclivity and the tendency to do celebration of life rather than funeral, uh, it leads us toward that kind of a thing where we don't look forward to, toward eternity uh, because we're too busy just kind of trying to candy coat what just happened. Uh, and so when we come to a moment when we face death, like Jesus comes to this moment where death is being faced by this widow at nine, when we come to these moments, we're given an opportunity and the scriptures say this all over the place, we're given an opportunity to wisely consider our way in light of the fact that life doesn't go on forever, right? And that's, that's so much of what's important when we talk about death is to recognize that there's a statement um, being made about the, the frailty of life and what its, what its end is. Um, and when we just pass right over that, we miss so much of the, the ability to just evaluate uh, and weigh in on what's going on in our lives. And so uh, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, uh, we see that he's doing miracles and he's working wonders and everything. But I think what's beautiful about this moment is that what seems untouchable and awkward and unapproachable to Jesus is an opportunity to show uh, two things very importantly. Number one, compassion, and then number two, power over death, right? Uh, we cannot miss that Jesus first shows compassion in this situation. Okay? Jesus doesn't just rush in, touch a casket, and, 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 and make it happen. Jesus moves in. He has compassion on the woman. He speaks to her in her situation, and he engages something that most of us would rather just stand back and, and stay away from. Right? Like If it doesn't directly involve me, I'd, I'd rather not be a part of it. Right? Jesus in compassion and, and with his tenderness comes close to the situation. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Right, so Jesus moves in to this situation. He comes close and he begins to address the woman and comfort her because of the compassion he feels for her. Now one thing that's really interesting about this is there's a, a, a close similarity between this story uh, and his interaction here with the widow and another story of death and resurrection. Anybody know about Lazarus? Uh, in John chapter 11. Okay, so if we want a story about death that is treated with significance, we go to the story of Lazarus because John parks there for a long time, right? Like Jesus is over here teaching with his disciples. Lazarus dies way over there, okay? Jesus hears about it over here. 
in the, in the chapter preceding when he actually does the resurrection. Then one of the sisters comes and visits Jesus as he's journeying onward. There's a discussion with the disciples. There's another meeting with another sister. And finally he gets to the tomb. Like this whole drawn out thing happens when John talks about the death, the death of Lazarus and how Jesus interacts with it. But one of the most striking similarities for me between Luke 7 uh, and John 11 is this word weep because in John 11:35 we see one of the shortest verses in the entire Bible and it is potent it says Jesus wept right Jesus wept so in John and his account of this whole situation he's um, helping us understand how close Jesus is to this family that Lazarus is a dear friend of Jesus, not just a friend, but a dear friend, right? Um, he talks to both of the sisters previous to getting to the tomb, and both of the interactions stir his heart, right, and get him feeling the significance of this. What's particularly interesting in John 11 is that before Jesus goes, he tells the disciples that Lazarus is coming back to life. So Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus already knows he has power over death. He can speak to dead things and they can come alive. And yet when he engages with Mary and has a conversation with her about her dead brother, still Jesus weeps, right? This is a man who has raised the dead, who's on his way to raise the dead, and he encounters death and weeps, right? So important to see how Jesus responds to death. He weeps. I hope for you that's a comfort because for me it has been. Because I can, I can see and I can feel and I can sense in my weeping, Jesus weeping with me. Right? Jesus knew he had power over death. Jesus knew he was going to go call Lazarus out of a tomb, but Jesus stopped with Lazarus's family, Jesus stopped with his friends, Jesus stopped in the emotion of it all, and Jesus wept. Even the way the verse is plopped into the narrative, it just interrupts everything. Just boom, Jesus wept, right? And so in John 11, Jesus weeps. Here in Luke 7, this woman is weeping. There's a similarity in their response to death. Jesus has compassion on this woman. He knows what it feels like to, to, to lose people, uh, and he has a similarity with them in that he actually weeps that, weeps with them. And so it's helpful for us to know whenever we face death, to know that our Savior, who is the perfect human, who never sinned, who always did everything correct, okay, that he too responded with weeping. So when you respond with weeping, it's correct. Right? Be comforted in that. That Jesus was God and was man and was perfect in all his functions and doings, and he too wept at death. Right? He knows the pain, uh, and he knows that when death comes, there's a fierce emotional response to it. So that does beg us the question when we compare that Jesus wept. And then to the fact that he tells this woman not to weep, it's kind of like, well, that's weird. 
So is that what Jesus is saying? Does Jesus walk into funerals and tell people to stop crying? Is that, like, is that what's going on here? Right? It seems like those two things would be opposed to one another. Uh, and I do not think that's what Jesus is saying when he says don't weep. I like the similarities, but he's not telling her, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. You're a man, stop crying. Right? Like, it'll be fine, stop crying. Like, not what Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is comforting her and leading her toward expectation. Okay? I think Jesus is coming in close and telling her something to stir her so that she will lift up her countenance and look for what he's about to do next. I think the reason Jesus says don't weep to this woman is because it's about to change. I think that's it. Okay. So if you've lost somebody, Jesus isn't telling you to weep. That's all I'm trying to say right now. That's, that's not Jesus' MO. Okay. Jesus' MO is John 11:35. He's weeping with you. Okay. He's weeping with you. But in this situation, Jesus displays his power over death. He tells the woman, don't weep. Life is coming right now. Right, right now, life is coming. So verse 14 and 15, then he came up and touched the, the bier. I don't even know how to pronounce that word. And the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Right, so two short little verses. Again, it seems like the treatment is so, so small compared to what's going on here. But this is earth shattering, right? Um, so this town nine, you can look at uh, Israel on uh, Google Maps right now. You can zoom in uh, to Jerusalem and go north a little bit towards the Sea of Galilee. Um, and just south of the Sea of Galilee, there's a little village, uh, and it's, um, it's called Nain. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it's N-E-I-N, so you can zoom in on Google Maps, and you can see this village now, currently. It's there, right? And there's all, all, actually a little church, a um, little stone church that was built uh, to commemorate this moment in that little village, okay? So I love doing that. I'm a maps I just enjoy maps, so I love zooming in. But what's stunning when you zoom in is the town's nothing. Okay, like it's, there's, there's not a lot of people there. So even in Jesus' day, this, it had to be just a tiny, tiny town, which means that everyone knew what happened this day. Right? Everyone knew. I believe that Jesus, in his sovereignty, because he followed after everything that God told him to do, was encountering a village in this moment so that his celebrity status, so that his, his knownness, so that his potency, his power, and just the significance of who he was could be spread to an entire town all at once, right? Because of the weight of who Jesus is and, and the testimony that was going around about him with an entire village being impacted by this resurrection, there was just no doubt that Jesus was who he was saying he was, right? That he indeed was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah sent to proclaim the kingdom, and that he was bringing a power like nobody had ever seen before, right? So this entire village is absolutely uh, blown away by this situation, right? And what's beautiful about this is that Jesus moves in this moment uh, with, with a tremendous amount of compassion for this woman uh, who we don't know the name, we don't know her history, we don't know her future, uh, but we do know that if she would have continued in the state with a dead son, already being a widow, that she would have been in utter object uh, poverty. Right? She would have been with no ability uh, to live. She could not earn her own income at that time. Um, she would have had no, uh, no husband to provide for her, now no son to provide for her. She would have been left at the, the, the mercy of the, the elements, so to say. I mean, who knows 
what her housing would have been like, who knows where she would have gotten her food, and all this type of stuff. So we see Jesus move into this scenario, and in one way, Jesus is demonstrating not just his power over death, which he does, but also his power over the world, meaning like the worldliness of the world, because he's pointing to his coming kingdom where there's not going to be any more poverty, where there's not going to be any more lack, and where there's not going to be any more injustice. Right, Because for a woman to lose her husband and then to lose her only son and to have no way to provide for herself is just to fall upon the mercy of a merciless world that eats people up like that, does it not? I, I mean, it's terrible what this world can do to people. And that is an injustice, and Jesus enacts this resurrection situation in a moment that saves this woman from the injustice of suffering for the rest of her lives because of poverty. It's a glorious display of what God's coming kingdom will do, and that is it will remove all of the curse, right? It will remove the curse of sin that brings brokenness on our society. It will remove the curse of sin that leaves us without help. It will remove the curse of sin that leaves us in vulnerable situations where we're taken advantage of by others, in particular women and children, right? We know the kingdom of God will not be a place where people suffer unjustly. The resurrection miracle here communicates that there is a coming kingdom where all that is wrong will be made right, where everything that is upside down will be turned right side up. It's a glorious display of what we have to look forward to, and that's not simply that there's no more death. It's not simply that people won't die anymore or won't get sick anymore or that we'll see our friends and family and we'll all be together. It's it's a greater reality that the original design that God is working back into history today because we first broke it, uh, that original design is coming back. The kingdom will reign. We will have a good king. The world will be right. Things won't be broken. It will be a glorious reality. And so this demonstration of power over death, it does point to the fact that one day there won't be death, that one day there won't be sickness, that one day there won't be crying. There won't be weeping. Jesus won't have to tell anyone anymore, do not weep, because every tear will be dried, every permanent tear, right? If you've experienced deep sorrow, you know what I mean by permanent tear. Those tears will be removed, and the kingdom will be established with no more lack and no more injustice and no more situations where a woman has to worry about her survival. Because God will make everything right. And so with just a few words, Jesus raises this young man to life. It harkens back to creation. At creation, it was merely the words and the will of God that created everything that we know. And at recreation, it will be the words and the will of God that recreate everything that we know. Jesus was there at creation. Jesus is here at this the son's recreation. And we know that Jesus will be in the end when all things are made new. And that's ultimately what any passage about someone coming back from the dead points us to, right? A long time ago, somebody pointed this out to me that everybody who Jesus raised from the dead then died again. That's true. Everyone that Jesus rose from the dead died again, right? Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead and didn't die again because Jesus is the only one who conquered death. And you need to understand this resurrection hope 
is woven all throughout the scriptures. God has always hinted at, given glimpses to, and promised that one day total resurrection will happen. Right? It was a surprise when Jesus rose because none of the disciples quite understood how all that came together, and he explained it to them after. Right? But all throughout scripture, we see this resurrection hope, the hope that one day there will be a time when there isn't mourning. There, isn't, there will be a time when there isn't grieving. There, there will be a time when there isn't loss. And so because of all those things, we now, though yet we are grieved, we are not grieved as those who have no hope. Right? And that's, that's what we need to hear when we come to the, the loss of a loved one, or the death of someone in our family or in our community. We need to hear death is here and it's heavy, right? But it's not the last word. The last word is Jesus, right? We need to recognize how severe this is, but also to recognize that our greatest hope is that Jesus promises to raise those who have put their trust in him. And so our hope in, our, in life and our hope in death is that we belong to God and that if we are his in Christ, we will rise again and we will see the risen one. I want to rifle through some scriptures and just show you how this is woven out uh, throughout the scriptures. Job, you know Job, he's the guy that lost it all, right? Like bad news bearer comes five days in a row and tells Job it's getting worse, it's getting worse, it's getting worse, it's getting worse, right? And then all his friends are like, dude, just you know, denounce God, die. I mean, it's just like, it's just a terrible life. Um, and, and all these things are going wrong. And even Job throughout the book is just confused in so many things. Um, he, he will not uh, turn away from his faith, but he just thinks God is just basically after him. You know, he's like, I, I guess God's just, just got it out for me. You know, it's just kind of the position that he's in in life. And some of you have been in that position at different times in your life. But right in the middle of some of Job's words, we find this amazing hope in Job 19.25. And when you think about it, if a guy like Job can say these words, how powerful is the spirit that resided in him? How powerful was the work that was, that was being done in him as he suffered? He says in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Right? So Job sees mortality. He sees family die. He loses so much hope, and he looks forward to a day where even he knows he'll die. He knows his flesh will go away. It will come to an end. And yet still, he proclaims, I'm going to see God. And just the thought of it, the last few, verse, or the last few words, he says, my heart faints within me. So Job held on to the promise that even though he had lost so many people who were very dear to him, and he knew because of that, he also had his own death to look forward to that that's where his life was going as well. And even in the midst of all that sorrow and all that heaviness, he trusted that he would see God, the creator of everything. Isaiah also promised resurrection. Isaiah 25, 8 just sounds glorious. He says, he will swallow up death forever. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sounds a lot like the words that John says in the book of Revelation, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, right? It's a hearkening or a, 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 a remembrance of what Isaiah foretold before any of it ever happened. He knew that the ultimate design was for God to swallow up all this death, to remove all of the pain, to once and for all settle every score, that the reproach of his people, meaning all the people who looked like their God abandoned them, all the people who were in ashes and torn, tattered clothes, all the people who told the world God is good but saw nothing but pain, all those people that the world looked at and said, your God has left you. You don't have real life. You don't have a bunch of riches. Your family's all gone. All those people who've been looked at by the world like that, there will be a settling, and the world will know. The world will know. God didn't leave anybody. God didn't leave any of his people. He's been faithful, and he's been true, and he's been with them, and he's removing their reproach. That means when the world looks on us, no one will feel bad for us. No one will say, where is their God? No one will say, was it worth it? Listen, that, that question, it's here today, but it will, it will be gone forever one day, right? That helps my heart. I hope it does yours. One day, will it be worth it? It won't even start to come off my lips because it will be worth it. Okay? Monday to Saturday, everyone's telling you completely the opposite of that. Okay? The whole world is screaming at you. It's not worth it to lose face. It's not worth it to lose money. It's not worth it to lose popularity. Right? It's not worth it to lose comforts. It's not worth it. Just deny God and go after all the stuff. That's what you're being told. So one day a week you get to hear, it's worth it. You will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. Because death will be swallowed up forever. So Job hoped for this, right? Resurrection, Isaiah promised it. We even see Jesus guaranteeing it, right? You know the story, he's on the cross, there's some, there's some criminals next to him. One of them's taking jabs, the other one's telling that guy to shut up and starting to have faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, just point blank, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus, is pro Jesus promises a criminal, he's going to be with him in paradise. He promised a criminal resurrection, right? Guaranteed it. You will be with me today, right? Jesus guaranteed it to that man at that moment on that cross. He speaks the same to us in faith, amen? And Paul, Paul like a champ, he ties it all together for us. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 57 before we wrap up. He says this, I tell you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's from Hosea. Verse 56, he says, the sting of sin is death, or sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the long, sad story of death. It was introduced at sin, and when death came at sin, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden so that they could not take a bite out of the fruit of eternal life, okay? Because there were two trees that, drew, that were in the midst of the garden. One was the knowledge of good and evil, and one was the tree of life, okay? If anyone takes from the tree of life, they'll live forever. Adam and Eve take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they're expelled from the garden, so they can't eat from the tree of life, okay? When sin came, death entered the world. That happened through one man, Okay? In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about how death came through Adam, but life comes through Jesus. Just a tremendous story. But what I want you to see is that God expelling Adam and Eve from the garden so they couldn't eat that fruit was a mercy. Because we cannot endure life forever in this sinful state. That would be horrendous. That would be horrendous. Okay? Though death is a terrible consequence... God knew that he would swallow it up, right? He would swallow it up. And so for God to allow us to live forever in this sin situation would be just the utmost of punishment. It would have been completely unmerciful. And so he said, you will not live forever this way. There will be an ending to this death, and that ending was promised throughout all Scripture, and Jesus is the fulfilling of that death. And so because of that death, we've become mortal. But because of Jesus' life, we will become immortal. Because of Jesus' resurrection, because of his coming and living and dying, but then conquering death through his resurrection, we know that we will change, right? We will put on a different type of life, and that is a life that will never end. Through Jesus Christ, we have the hope of saying, one day, death, where's your sting, right? We don't say today, death, where's your sting, one day we will say, death, where is your sting? And that's the beauty of confronting death when it does come. It's hard and it's heavy, and we know that it's significant, but we can look to a hope of a future of a day where its sting will be gone, right? And what we want to do as a family, as a church, is be willing to walk into the hard situations and talk about the tough stuff because we know there's a hope on the other side. And sometimes this is awkward, right? Sometimes we stumble our way through it. Like I know it's Super Bowl Sunday and we're supposed to have like a quarterback come here and like tell you all you're going to be champions this week. Like that's what we should do today. But instead we're in Luke 7, 11 through 17, right? Like if that's our reputation, that's our reputation. We're going to talk about the heavy stuff 
We're going to deal with it because one day you don't, you're not going to give a rat about who came up and told you to be a champion. You're going to want to know Jesus is weeping with you because you'll face it. I guarantee it. And I'm not saying that with anger and with being dismissive about it. I want you to know in the worst of the worst days, Jesus is there. They're coming. It's not a threat. It's a promise, and you know it. You know it. The world lies to you all week and tells you it's not coming, but it's coming. I don't care how many shakes you drink or how many spin classes you do. It will come, right? Let us be a people who know how to be there when it comes, right? The first 12 years of my ministry, I did two funerals. The last five years, I've done five. I don't know what's going on. I don't. But God has chosen to weave together a group of people who have death all around them. Right here in this congregation, we're tiny. We've been around for just a few years and we've lost like four dads, some babies. I mean, you kidding? A 28-year-old mother of two? Like, what is going on? I've been asking myself that all week. And the only answer I can come up with is Jesus wants to heal people with us. That's, that's, all, I can, that's all I can figure out. Is that one day this community and the people that we love in it and the people that we're rubbing shoulders with daily in it and the people that we work with and go to class with and live next to, one day they're going to wake up and the sun's not going to be shining and the sea's going to stop crashing against the shore and the palm trees are all going to fall down. And that's going to be their world. And where are they going to go? Bottle of pills? I don't know. I don't know. I want them to come to me. I want them to come to us. So whether we like it or not, Jesus has thrust us into this moment to say, death is coming. The resurrection is our hope. And we can be wise to life when we're equipped with that kind of stuff. My favorite passage to preach, it's kind of weird to think, at a funeral is Ecclesiastes 7, 1 and 2. And it says it's better to go to the day of death than to the day of birth. It's a strange little, I mean, it's Ecclesiastes, so it's strange anyway. But he's, he's like, listen, when you can go to a funeral instead of a baby dedication, you'll get wisdom. You'll get wisdom about life. Because at a funeral, you'll ponder the ending of all man. And that gives you a perspective like nothing else can, right? So listen, whether we like it or not, we've waded knee-deep into the waters of death because we are here in the world. A lot of people get to ignore it. A lot of people get to say, it's coming later. We've had to deal with it. And we're wiser because of it. And that's God's grace. Not so that we might boast, but so that we can serve. So we can serve a dying people who live in a land that tells them it's all life. <laughs> right? Let's be truth tellers. Tender, compassionate, not forceful, not sitting here just waiting like, you know, just like ready. Waiting, ready, kind, soft, 
understanding we're going to stumble as we do it, but let's try to love people and be compassionate, right? Let's, let's try to be those people. And I believe Jesus can move through us. Maybe not to raise the dead, but point to the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And I know it's hard to talk about death. and We'd rather not. Thank you that we don't have to talk about it necessarily every week, but here this week you've chosen to give us this moment. And we want to lean into it, trusting uh, that you're good, trusting that you care about us, uh, trusting that when you give us these devastating moments, you are with us in them, that you don't abandon us, that you don't leave us hopeless, that you yourself don't leave us at all, but you're with us. And we know, Jesus, that you faced death, you overcame death, but you don't just treat it as some flippant little thing. You care so much that you move in with your compassion, with your tenderness, and with your power to comfort those who weep and to provide for them a greater hope. And that is that one day we will see you. One day, death will die completely and life eternal will be ours. And not just ours, but the many who believe and put their faith in you, Jesus. So God, lift our hearts, even as we sing in the next few minutes, would you lift our hearts toward hope? Some of us are still in the throes of grief in different ways. Um, Or would you do your work in us? Uh, And God, we do pray that as a family, as a church, as a people who trust in you, that you would um, enable us and send us out to be helpful and comforting and compassionate to the world around us that doesn't know how to talk about death that doesn't know how to face it, that isn't equipped, and that's okay. Send us anyway, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.